CB, Dr. CB. Yo, Dunny, we back in Le Chateau and it's been a minute. I mean, you're here every day. I'm here every day. A lot of days. Uh, but in this context with microphones and recording and dropping pod, yeah. it's been a while, man. You're here five days a week, 17 days a month, 14 days a year. 14 days a year. Come on. I once heard it said that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Are you talking about the podcast? Yeah. Do you think our listeners are already regretting that we're back? I know. I mean, I don't know how that saying relates to that because it'd mean they missed it. Nah, yeah, it'd be like, oh, I miss those guys. But then as soon as we're backed, right, then they're kind of like, yeah. what did I miss? Yeah. This Just in terrible. the 47 seconds that we've started now. Yeah. Yeah. I think they have already reached that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, you, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been sooner than 47 seconds. <laughs> you're not wrong. Oh, man. But it's good to be back. It is good to be back. It's, it's uh, man, it felt good. We had an interview today. That felt so great. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to introducing that. Um, but we've had a lot of things going on otherwise that yeah. have taken time away from our opportunity to do this. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. One thing that's been super cool is uh, Tad's Emerging World. Ah, uh, Tad's Emerging World. How about yeah. Don Kish, Sierra Marietta, man. and crew? And crew. At all? At all? At all. Yeah. Yeah, man. This, but they are doing the dang thing. They're on their way to Banff right now as we're recording, correct? Yeah, on yeah. their way to Banff. Yeah. And then Salt Lake, they're taking, they're taking the film to the masses. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's so cool. And a couple of weeks ago, we were able to host a screening with Canyon Coolers and Mother Road Brewing and Fratelli's yeah. at the Canyon Cooler Warehouse and where she uh, showed Ted's Emerging World and then yeah. was able to talk about it. And, yeah. Uh, such a neat experience. Yeah. It was an exclusive showing for the Flagstaff community. Yeah. Yeah. Turned out great. It's a good vibe in there, huh? It was a great vibe and it was great to um, hear Dawn kind of talk about her process and experience with the film, you know, in addition to what she shared on the pod, but yeah. um, take questions and answers for the, the people who had shown up. Yeah. Such a great piece of work that addresses our area here. Yeah, for sure. So if you haven't had a chance, one, you can check out the podcast with Don Kish or two, um, make sure you go check out Tad's Emerging World, um, which you can Google or find on the uh, IG. Yeah. Yeah. Check that out. I'm not sure where it'll be released. So, um, she had the showing that was going on during Banff. Hopefully you voted for her. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, yeah, I think, I think from there they'll decide where it's shown, where else it's shown. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully next will be the global film fest, the The uh, GFF, uh, cans, uh, cans. Is that the GFF global planetary film fest? I cans is like the big one in France or Francois. Somewhere? <laughs> Europe? <laughs> yeah, that's the one over in Francois. We? Oui. Croissant. <laughs> yeah. He's just a multilingual. Man. Just a real piece of work. <laughs> POW? Yeah. That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, what do we got on the docket oh, for man. today? We got good stuff. We're going beyond flag. First time in a while. Going beyond flag with Adrian Herter who is the marketing and media manager for the nonprofit organization TNA, which is the acronym for three Navajo words that translate into sacred water speaks. Adrian is from the Black Mesa region of the Navajo Nation and currently resides in Flagstaff. He served as a volunteer with TNA for seven years before officially joining the team in 2020. In 2017, he graduated from the Northern Arizona University. Yeah, go Fumble lax. Fumble lax, yeah. Harvard of the West. Come on. 
He earned his Bachelor of Science in Fitness and Wellness. In addition to all this, he's an accomplished potter and artist, showing his work in several notable shows and art markets. He's designed many flyers, posters, and logos for businesses and organizations. And then outside of TNA, Adrian likes to run, take photos of Diné life, and dedicate his time to making traditional Diné pottery. Yeah. So in this interview, uh, we covered a lot of cool things. We covered Adrian's work with TNA and the important work that that organization is doing through education while simultaneously holding Peabody Coal accountable for the harm they caused to Navajo land and the people. We also discussed his connection to his home in Hard Rock and Flagstaff and get into the topic of how he fell into the position of becoming a race director for the event Res Duro, which was featured in the film The Trails Before Us and premiered at the Flagstaff Mountain Film Festival this past spring. Blammo. Yeah. Boy, how would you like that to fall into becoming a race director? Yeah, I don't know if that's for me. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone should check out that film, though, that shows before us. Shows before us. Well, thank you so much for joining us as we go beyond flag with Adrian Herder. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production created by with and for the people of Flagstaff building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips and Cody Bayless, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go beyond flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory. All right. Well, Adrian Herder, we're happy to have you here today. Welcome. Yeah. Would you be willing to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, good morning. Hello, my name is Adrian Herder. Hello everyone, uh, good morning. My name is Adrian Herder. Um, I'm from the community of Hard Rock located on Black Mesa, and I currently reside here in Flagstaff, where I also um, work here in Flagstaff, and in that way, I am Dine. And uh, what is it that you do for work here in Flagstaff? Um, so I work for the nonprofit profit uh, which translates to Sacred Water Speaks, and um, we are a Navajo nonprofit that recently acquired a space here in Flagstaff, and so um, we eventually took upon ourselves to have our office, an office here in Flagstaff, as well as our own remote places out on Black Mesa. Um, so yeah, I'm the media organizer for Tuanijonene, and I cover our social media and any media um, related to our organization. And um, yeah, I just recently started back in 2020, um, right when the pandemic was going on. So that's kind of where I started and. I've always been involved with the organization, um, but like just as growing up with it, um, seeing the, the, the things done, the protests we've been involved with, and then um, now to actually be as an organizer, that's kind of where I am here. And eventually, um, with the recent acquisition of the office space here in Flagstaff, eventually I moved um, from my own community of Hard Rock um, back into Flagstaff. So what does, what does your job look like then? What kind of job tasks do you have as a social media or, or as the media organizer? Um, of course, it's like a desk job. So I sit at the desk <laughs> and I monitor our social media, 
um, and also I mean, my phone. I look at our phone, our phone, um, my phone, and I review our social media, our social like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and things like that. Um, and then also with that, I have a little social media or like a media campaign called Voices from Black Mesa. And this was a media campaign that we recently started like last year. Um, and the idea of that, it just came about when um, we were talking, my, our executive director mentioned, we should interview this person and you should get this person's like interview just to kind of get it out there, like especially their take on um, what's happening right now. So eventually that happened. And then eventually the idea of like um, creating the voices from Black Mesa kind of um, came out of that. And so at first we were just looking at just interview this person. Um, and so eventually we got the idea of why don't we call it like a series, like a voices from Black Mesa. That way we highlight different voices, different people from the community that call Black Mesa home. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with Black Mesa, it's located on the central agency side of the Navajo Nation. So like the middle part of the Navajo Nation, it's like a large landmass, a plateau um, slash Mesa. And it houses about, along with the Hopi tribe, it also has seven Navajo chapter communities. And so my community of Hard Rock is one of those seven. And so um, that's pretty much where we decided like, not everybody knows about Black Mesa. Not everybody is familiar with like the livelihood that people live up there because um, a lot of times when people hear about Black Mesa, they're like, oh man, that's like, those people are really like roughing it up there. <laughs> and it's kind of like where it, it's, I would have to say, honestly, it's probably one of the last, the communities up there on Black Mesa, we are one of the last remaining remote rural communities and so a lot of that um, you you've got a really good understanding of tradition language and culture it's somewhat still intact within these communities up on Black Mesa mm -hmm. and so it's a lot different than other communities off Black Mesa in uh, bigger towns on Navajo and things like that and so um, that's one thing my boss our executive director Nicole Horsherder she mentioned that we need to we should highlight these voices to get people to be familiar with the people that come from this region I mean, this guy I interviewed yesterday in the community of Pinon, um, he, he, he was, had a lot of really good things to say. And he, the one takeaway he just kind of said was, like, you know what, I kind of wish my kids were asking these questions. He said, I wish that my kids were asking me, hey, dad, what's the history of this area? Hey, dad, who is this person? Why are they important in our family? And he said, and for him, he's kind of just relying on that. Um, Navajo mentality where like if you're not asking for it then you're not going to get it so meaning like if you're not going to ask what are the stories I'm not going to tell you the stories and if nobody asks me about these things then I'll just take it to my grave and it's mm. kind of that's that's kind of detrimental to our way of life I mean that that's that's some um, a, a mindset that a lot of our people have I mean which they should be but at the same time it can do some damage because like you're taking these stories these um, customs with you instead of sharing it at the same time our youth should also be asking these questions and so I was like oh man that and I just told him I said I hope one day one of your kids ask you what's the history of Pinyon who how did we get the high school here how did we do this and then of course hopefully he's still around to tell them and so that's kind of where our voices from Black Mesa we're hoping that people catch on
to say like, oh, I didn't know that like mm-hmm. there was uranium mining that happened in the Blue Gap community. Like mm-hmm. honestly, I had no idea that happened until like a couple of years ago. Like I was not familiar with the uranium. I just thought coal was the only issue on Black Mesa. Mm-hmm. But before coal was uranium. Mm-hmm. And that was in a certain community on Blue Gap. And so that's just kind of one thing that we, um, for this media campaign, it's just kind of like looking at different people's perspectives on their life, how they went about their lives on Black Mesa. Mm-hmm. Um, not to the, not that we want to bring up a lot of the traumas and kind of like bring up the sob stories, but just kind of like, like also looking at the resiliency of our communities, our people, and like how they're able to manage. Yeah, I was wondering, um, in conducting those interviews and learning from the stories, did you find any common themes in the resiliencies of the stories that you would that you would hear? Yeah, I would say, um, well, um, I guess the resiliency would probably have to be how a lot of us have managed to go um, without limited water. So that's kind of like the one of the common things I've noticed with a lot of them is that a lot of them would talk about like I grew up getting water here, there was water here, but of course none of that none of that is available here. And so that was really interesting. And of course a lot of us have to adapt to that. Like our original water sources, which were like seeps and springs up there, um, are all gone. Most are gone, and so only certain ones remain. But what our community is doing now to kind of hang on to that. And so that's pretty much where it's like you get different viewpoints. Like, for example, um, some of these um, people like the shepherds, the sheep herders, they mentioned like, yeah, we do rainwater catchment. We do we collect the snow and we melt it and we kind of have that as like um, like to to give water to our livestock as compared to trying to travel into the local watering facility, which is usually in our chapter house communities. For us, it's about 50 miles away, um, traveling in there to haul water and then bring that back to our area. Of course, it's not free. We have to pay for that. And it's just kind of like just different ways people are still trying to cope. But I'm not saying that it's we're all like everything is all like perfect up there. (laughs) It's just kind of people finding their ways to adapt to this, um, I guess, future that we're pretty much heading towards and so that's really pushes for us as an organization to continue our work because we do like our main focus right i mean our foundation is water protection and that was a huge part of where we were established as an organization and so to see these different stories from people that mention water 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 we don't have water in these areas or we're trying our best to protect these infrastructures that are set in place with the water where water comes out or like seeps or springs or we're trying to kind of safeguard these areas because um, if it's not, they could be easily damaged. And so like if people aren't aware of that, then they're just going to damage it and eventually we could lose that. And so, um, but yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. A lot of people, um, they probably don't see it, but I see it. It's just like for them to be really like, um, proud of where they come from especially on the black mesa region it's like it's a really beautiful region like as i get older now it's like i like driving through different communities i guess the joys of me doing this media project is i get to see different places on black mesa yeah in what ways has it increased your connection to black mesa i would have to say it's really like i mean i've always some of these places like i've always like 
when I would drive into the like communities or whatever, I'd be like, I wonder what's back there. Mm-hmm. Like what's over there? And at one point I got to go to a place where I was kind of curious about, like I even interviewed this one um, woman. She was um, a classmate back in the day. I hate to say um, female, but um, she was a classmate. And um, like, I, I wasn't really familiar with where she lived, but I know she lived in a certain area I've never been to. And I know, she always posts about stories about her on her social media. And I was like, it'd be really interesting to see like what she has to say. And I know, I think I found out eventually that she's fluent in Navajo. And I was like, wow, that's really rare to find. I mean, of all black mates, that's kind of a little bit more common than most places. But for me, I was like, wow, I didn't know you were fluent in Navajo. And just kind of hearing her story was really amazing. Kind of like her push was like, I live up here with my grandma. My mom lives over here, but I stay here with my grandma. This is kind of where we're from. And we all grew up here. And this is the Navajo name in these places. And so I think for me, the takeaway is learning place names. Mm-hmm. That's a huge thing because like, um, like for me, I always ask, what is this place called? Like, what is, what is this place called in Navajo? And um, they would tell me this is that. And there's one thing that like my grandma once said, she was like, um, these places have names like the land has it has names these names refer to the significant things in the area and so I think for me that was a big thing is to learn these place names that way let's say for example I'm traveling with my parents or somebody oh you know that place is called this and it's really important to know these place names because a lot of that ties back into the stories in the communities, maybe the ceremonies that come in. Like I collected plants at this mountain or this hillside, this wash, this valley, this region. And then for you to, if you were to know that name, oh, it's over here. And it's really, um, in a way, it it kind of really helps us keep that language going because then if you know the Navajo names, it's really, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's the takeaway. It's just kind of seeing different places that I've never been hearing people's stories, different clan groups' stories of what they have in the area, their perspectives. And it's just really different because, um, again, like I'm just still trying to navigate, like figuring out where do people live in this community? Where are the clan groups in this community? How did you all as a clan group get here? Because you've got a lot of different clan groups in the community. In our community, we've got um, I'm Chishidne, which is Chiricahua Apache. Yeah, but I'm for fourth force Navajo. <laughs> so it's a clan group. And it's just kind of people ask like, well, how did you all get up there? Like there's a like our community has the largest population of Chishitne people or their second clan is Chishi or their third clan is Chishi or their grandparents were Chishi or whatever. And it's just kind of like, well, I'll tell you what I know, but it's not the story for everybody. And so I'll just tell you what I know. And so that's kind of one thing I always ask, like, who's from this community? Is your mom from here? Is your dad from here? They're like, oh, my mom, my aunt or my dad's from this community. My mom's from this community. Okay, where is your grandparent, your grandma from? Your maternal grandma? Oh, she's from here, but we moved here. And it's just really interesting because that's kind of like your place name, like where you come from. And I don't know, I just like talking about place names and where people are from. (laughs) Yeah, having the name for something helps to feel connected to it by knowing the story or the history or what was in that area. What has it been like moving to Flagstaff? Um, Well, I've lived here before. I, the first time I moved here was back in 2014. So I was at a, I was on the res, I was going to school at the tribal college and eventually 
I left that and then, I don't know, I was confused with my financial aid. I really had no understanding how it all worked. So I thought I only had a limited amount of time to use that financial aid to get a bachelor's. And so I was still working on my AA. And then, I don't know, I was just like, took a year off from school. You know what? I think I'm going to go to Flagstaff. I don't, I can't do, I, I'm not a big fan of the heat down south. I don't do the big city. Uh, that's just not something for me. So eventually I was like, let me try Flagstaff. But I, knew I, I had no idea how expensive it was. <laughs> and so I came here, moved in with my sister, and I was going to the community college in 2014 at CCC. Did that. And eventually I was from here in Flagstaff from 2014 to 2017 when I graduated from NAU. So I got my bachelor's there at NAU, graduated, stuck around for a little bit, less a couple of months. And eventually I found work back on home in Pinon. So I moved back to Pinon, taught there at the local high school, coached there as well. Uh, for about two years and then eventually pandemic hit and that's when I left um, and then this job came up for and it just kind of came up in 2020 so I came back I wasn't really looking like planning on it sometimes like for me I really feel like I don't really like to go back to places I've already been to <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like ah, I don't I don't know about moving back to Flagstaff it was it's a nice place it's expensive but I was like um because like my memory here was like Back in 2016, I believe, I actually slept in my ride for a couple of months because mm-hmm. we moved out of our, my sister left her, um, she got her degree, she was moving out of her place, she was going back home after she got her degree. And so me and my sister were like, we didn't even plan to like figure out our, our housing after this. So she had some friends in town, so she stayed with them. And I didn't want to ask anybody. I didn't want to ask like family that was here, hey, can I surf, like couch surf or whatever. I didn't see anything. I was like, you know what? I have a ride. I have a like, part-time job um, that has a kitchen there. I was like, you know what? I'll just sleep in my ride. So I slept in my ride for two months, like October into December. And uh, oh, wow. yeah, it was, it, <laughs> luckily, cold. yeah, luckily my brother gave me, I think it's called Beef. I don't know if that's the brand that, um, the um, sleeping bag, really heavy duty, mm-hmm. like that down one. He mm-hmm. just bought it and he's like, here, well, he had it. And then he just said, here, you want a sleeping bag? And I was like, um, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. And so eventually that's what was like my saving grace. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So when it came time to come back, you're like, I don't know if I'm down. For yeah, that. I was like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not really, my memory of flags that was different because it was, it was rough. Yeah. It was like, as a college student, you're struggling and especially as like a minority, it's like different. It's like, you really have to worry about like, money and food whereas some folks kind of just have the luxury of like oh i'll just call up mom or dad and hey can you guys send me some money whatever but for me i knew that was not the case i was like i don't want to reach out to parents because they've already got the farm to hold down at home and so eventually that's where i was like, you know what i'm not gonna ask anybody i'm just gonna try and do it myself and i have a ride i'll sleep in my ride and so that's kind of what i did for a while anyways so I came back to Flagstaff um, and I like it. I mean, now that I've actually got like an adult job, <laughs> it's a little bit more bearable. Um, yeah, I'm enjoying my time. It's just, I could say the pandemic really threw a lot of us off. And so I think it's slowly, I feel like a lot of us are slowly trying to get back to the quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah man, the, the look on your face when you said... Um October through December. <laughs> like, these two dudes are going to think I'm going to say June and July. But, yeah. yeah. No, October yeah. to December. Ooh, oh, man. I'm glad, but I'm at least it's not through. January to February. That's yeah, cold. Yeah, that's cold. That's because bitter. I know one morning, yeah. like, 
I think it was in December because I was staying because I was like, you know what? I need to stay until I finish my semester here at CCC in my fall. Yeah. So then eventually like December, I remember one morning, like it was pretty cold. Um, and I usually just like um, got on my ride, found the parking spot, went to sleep. And then like one morning I woke up and there was just snow. I was like, whoa. And like every morning, like especially when it started getting really cold, like it would be like I would wake up and there would be frost everywhere, like yeah. all around the window. So everything would be frosted. And then like one morning I woke up and it was like, well, when I turned on my ride to heat it up, that probably is not something I should have done, but should be doing. But I turned on my ride to let it warm up. Well, I'm in there and um, I remember um, like I looked at the little whatever um, temperature thing gauge oh, yeah. and it was like negative three. Oh, <laughs> no. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, this can't be right. I mean, I don't know. I was just like, that's crazy. So like right. I just crawled back into my sleeping bag, closed everything up and yeah. just waited till the ride warmed up. All right, it's warm enough. I get out, change my clothes. All right, I'm going to go to campus now. So I go to my job, which was at CCC as well. Mm-hmm. Just go to the lounge area where I have my stuff, eat yeah. breakfast, chill there, and then go to like work. <laughs> well, thank goodness Jeez. for that sleeping bag. Yeah. yeah. Tell your brother thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, it made me wonder this whole path, like uh, you said you're learning the media stuff, but also that you've learned enough as an organization. Sometimes you guys are giving tips to other people. And so it made me wonder, on your personal path, how did you end up at the point that you were? So with our organization, it's kind of like a family. We're all a family here. Mm-hmm. So we're familiar with everything going on. So, um, for example, Nicole's mom and my mom are sisters. Mm. Yeah, so we're really, we kind of grew up with this organization. And so mm-hmm. Nicole, of course, was the one at the lead of all of it so we just knew oh it's kind of like we're familiar with it as a family because nicole's the one that started it and we're we like we grew up going to protest things like that we mm-hmm. kind of were familiar with the movement what was going on because of course it's happening in our own communities and mm-hmm. so um before we moved to flagstaff their office we pretty much had the our office was our own homes at home <laughs> so that's kind of was like really interesting to have an, an organization like of ours it's different because we actually were out there in our community we actually were in the in our area and so we kind of operated out of our own homes and it, when we advocated we knew what we were kind of familiar with because we all grew up like a lot of us out there we still don't have running water um we have electricity but no running water and so we grew up like the, knowing the necessities of how important water is how to get it how to process it or where to get it from what happens if this place isn't having water where do you go next and so <clears throat> we kind of were off from the, so we got that understanding of how important water is and then eventually with water advocacy the organization we eventually were able to progress now with the media component um i i guess i've always just been like fascinated with like the idea of storytelling and like um design as well like creating i guess designing things and storytelling telling our perspectives as um our area because a lot of times a lot of people kind of look at they've seen me on social media and they think like i'm a traditional person i mean kind of but i I don't i don't say i'm traditional that much i am I'm not fluent, but I should be. I should have been fluent, <laughs> given how we how we grew up, where we grew up. But of course, that wasn't um, how it really happened. But um, so it's just kind of like just the idea of storytelling, because a lot of times people didn't grow up 
the way a lot of us did in our area. Like, I would say the biggest thing, the biggest culture shock experience I've ever had, which is pretty funny, it's kind of nuts, is that, so our community of Hard Rock is here, and our biggest community is Pinyon. And that, that was my first culture shock experience, is that I moved into the community of Pinyon, because my sister, at the time, she worked for the school, so she had teacher's housing. So we kind of lived, moved in with her in her house. Uh, there was a lot of us in there. And that was like kind of like really my first experience like growing up with running water right there. It was like my senior year. It's like, whoa, we have a bathtub in this house. It was just like mind-blowing for me because we're like, we usually don't get this experience until we go off the res. Like our family, ourselves, we go off and stay someplace like this. And I was like, it was really interesting because I was like, it doesn't feel like you're on the res. Like this is a really nice community, the teacher's housing in Pinyon, and it's got these nice, I don't know, like community, village, whatever, teacher's housing. Anyways, that was like really mind-blowing, like, whoa. And then eventually, like, just kind of having bashes right down the road, subway, gas station, laundromat. It was like, whoa, this is weird. It was really culture shock. And then eventually I realized, like, growing up, I thought a lot of kids grew up the way I did. I thought everyone grew up with no running water all your siblings and family living in one a one-room house, you all, like, having sheep, livestock, herding sheep, um, growing your own produce, butchering your own meat, and things like that. Um, and just kind of having the land base. I thought everybody grew up like that. Eventually, I remember one time my sister made a joke. She was like, we were so poor that we had our own food to grow and we also had our own mutton to butcher. She's like, that's how poor we were. <laughs> we were laughing because now like you think about it, that's like, that's like, I don't know, I don't hate to say trending, but that's kind of like people are like, oh, like your own produce, organic, whole foods. It's like, shoot, we grew up with that, but people said we were poor. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that just kind of the idea of storytelling, that was kind of the thing is that I realized that at first I was ashamed of it. Like nobody grew up like this. And eventually, not everybody grows up like grew up like this, and that's kind of where I the idea of storytelling is to say, all right, this is our corn produce. This is kind of how my mom prepares it to make certain traditional foods. Um, this is where we go to herd sheep, or this is kind of how we herd sheep. This is how the butchering process is, or this is like our earthenwork gabions that we do while we're out herding sheep, things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of what the idea for me with like storytell, and eventually I carried that somewhat into the, the work for because for me as the media organizer I feel like my job is of course our job as an organization as a nonprofit is we're like the middleman we are trying to convey this technical information that's out there like for example maybe like water hydrology mm -hmm. how do we transfer that into a Navajo to make it more digestible for our communities because yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's kind of was our major role with when um, it was first created our organization, our founder, Nicole and Marshall, that was their major job because a lot of it was like, like um, when it came to the hydrology of the aquifer, they were, had to really like, they had to create terms at some point. They had to figure out how do you say this term? How do we describe this? Because it's really complex and we need to change it into Navajo to make it more digestible for our communities because they're not going to understand the English component of it. And so that's where the organization, we were kind of like the middle person to like, how do we transfer this to make it more digestible to the community here? And that was their main goal was to yeah. do that. And I think at that time it was not really, I mean, today it's kind of not as 
people still don't do it, but that was a big thing is that they were out there in the communities out there at chapter meetings to talk about water hydrology. Mm-hmm. What is the impact of mining to our area? How does it impact? Like you guys have seen, you all have seen it out there. Because a lot of times, like one time I had a friend, he was telling me, oh, we're not impacted by coal mining. And he's from like a different region of Black Mesa. And then I said, yeah, you are. I said, why are all these horses coming to your area? And he's, oh, because we have a spring here. But why? Why can't they go somewhere else? Why can't they go to that one over there? Oh, that because that one doesn't work anymore. That spring is gone. And why is that spring gone? Because it dried up. If you look at this study, this kind of the correlation between mining and the aquifer, you are a coal impacted community. And he was just like, oh, I didn't think about that. I was like, yeah, so a lot of us, when we talk about water here on Black Mesa, that pretty much makes us a coal impacted community. And so anyways, um, that's just kind of like the work of like trying to, to make the connections for our community members to say this is kind of one of the reasons why we're advocating for this and um, transferring the information to make it more digestible for communities. And so that's where I feel like um, it's also my job as a media organizer is to kind of talk about like to, to, to make this information more accessible to folks. Like, mm-hmm. for example... Um, bond release like not everyone knows what bond release is what's a bond what does it mean to be released what does bond release mean because these companies are trying to get out of any responsibility for cleaning up Mm -hmm. so bond release what it is is pretty much the company is trying to relinquish itself from being bound to the work of coal mining or restoring the land land to that area and so once they say, okay, we did reclamation, we did reclaim the land, look, every, it meets all the requirements, check, 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 check. Now um, it goes to, we're up for bond release. And so it's pretty much a process. The last person to sign off on that application is BIA. So BIA is the one that eventually looks at everything. Okay, everything meets the requirement, we're going to sign off on it that land eventually now goes back to the Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to the tribe that it was pretty much used or whatever. So that's pretty much what bond release is, is that they're trying to relinquish themselves from the duty and obligation to reclamation or the land. And eventually, once it gets approved, it meets all the requirements, it goes back to the Navajo Nation. Now, the families that used to reside in the area before they were moved or before they got changed, they kind of get access back to that. Mm -hmm. And so that's, for us as an organization, um, that's pretty much where the issue is, is that, it, again, you're going back into that um, being the middleman. Like you're like, we're trying to advocate, also amplify some of the voices of these people in these communities, um, to say because a lot of times we hear is that like them saying we were not consulted when it came to reclamation, the seeds that were planted here, the way these things were changed, we were never consulted about it, and so that's pretty much where um, we work with try and work with Navajo Nation to say hey we have community concerns here and what's being done about these communities voices like right now they're before these wait, before these lands go get returned to them they need to say in how they want it restored how they why aren't they being included in these discussions because we had one um, we had a mindset tour last year of these certain areas that were going up for bond release um, and we joined them and just one of the local community members just happened to be in the area, like right in that office area. And then she asked, what's going on here? And then eventually they told her, oh, we're going on a mine site tour. And she's like, okay, I want to go. 
And they're like, okay, yeah. And so then she, she got on board. And then the one interesting thing she said was that she's like, you know what? And there was like officials from Navajo Nation, Office of Surface Mining and Reclamation. There was Navajo Minerals Department. They were there, the people that are overseeing this operation as well from the Navajo Nation consp- component. And then we had officials from um, OSMRE, Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement. They were there as well. And so they were just kind of talking, this is what we've done to the area. This is what we've done here and this and that. And that local community member, she was like, you know what? This is the first time I'm seeing any of you. She's like, this is the first time I'm seeing any of you in this area driving around. And this is the first time I'm being included in this. She said, I live right there. And I oversee, I, this used to be my grazing area, right where it got taken out. This whole mining happened. She said, this is the first time I've ever been here seeing any of you all. And she's like, what does that show like our involvement as community members in this reclamation process? And it, it, it's a really, it's a tough situation, the whole reclamation component of it. It's like, I mean, just the way it's going about. Because Office of Surface Mining Reclamation Enforcement, they go with government, government, like interactions or um, it has to be from the Navajo Nation. They don't really work. I mean, they, they said that it's not community to OSM. It's more of like Navajo Nation to OSM. So we have to go through the Navajo Nation to that government to government process. And that the hard part, and that's kind of just showed that one of the um, community members just said, I've never seen any of you Navajo Nation officials here before. And we're just like, I'm kind of glad you said that because that's what they needed to hear because they say, oh, well, we oversee this mine over in New Mexico too. Well, this mine, Black Mesa mine is different because you actually have people that still live here. No other mine has people that has people still living on the land and that were probably just moved a couple of miles down the road or Mm -hmm. whatever, but it's still like people live here. Whereas typically when operations happen like this, you relocate people somewhere else. They get moved somewhere over here and the mining happens. But for this one, you still have families that live in the in and around the mine area. And so that was just really, really interesting to hear. <laughs> well, it increases the importance that much to include those voices in what reclam- reclamation should look like. And so it's interesting. I don't know if this is happening and I, I'm really curious to hear from you, but it's almost like those companies could say, oh, well, bond release is a benefit to you all because we're signing the lands back over to you. We've done everything. Don't you want the lands back? And, and that could be marketed as a really positive thing. But in the same right, they're actually releasing themselves over any obligation to actually incorporate feedback from people that know the area, that have histories about the area, that know what the area should actually look like in terms of the biodiversity and the land. And so it, it could be marketed one way, like, oh, we're, we're honoring you by giving your land back. In actuality, they're actually releasing themselves from obligation to contribute to returning the land to what it was. Yep, yep, that's true. Because, like, it's, um, for these, like, a lot of them, that's the biggest concern a lot of them had. Just recently, within, like, last month, we had a, um, bond release meeting hearing or um, meeting that happened in the Forest Lake Chapter community, which is on Black Mesa, Forest Lake Chapter is the community that has its boundaries that go into the mine site area. Mm-hmm. So there are certain community members that live near the mine who are part of Forest Lake Chapter. So we had like a bond release meeting there. And so that's where OSM came out with other officials and Navajo Nation officials were there too as well to kind of hear like on... Um, 
the people's comments, people's perspectives on bond release that was happening for these certain areas that were going out for bond release. And I am glad like we went out there thinking, okay, we need to like um, make sure that we, we hit these points that we're going to talk. And eventually um, when people were out there, like they just went ahead, like people were just started, they already started providing their comments, which is good because we were like, wow, this is exactly what like maybe 20 years ago, this would have probably been a different case. This probably would have been different for folks to talk like this about bond release, about um, reclamation, about things like that. And so that's kind of where we were really happy to see people really outspoken to say, well, we don't want this bond, their bonds to be released because we still have the issue with water here. We still don't have windmills that happen in these areas. And so... Like a lot of them mentioned, there used to be a windmill here, there used to be a windmill here, there used to be a water source here, but all of that is gone. And so that's kind of a lot of their key um, concerns came up that way was like saying, we don't want any of you all's bond, the bonds to be released from because we still have our needs that are not met here. There are areas that were really important to us and the vegetation that is planted here, like they said, this is our livestock don't eat this. Like, who is the one that authorized these seeds to be put here? What about the traditional seeds here? Um, and with the reclamation, only 5% of that land base is dedicated to cultural um, plants. So they dedicated certain areas, certain patches, where they're calling it like cultural sites, meaning that they're trying to plant, reintroduce the plants that were there before, just in only 5%. And the rest of it is some kind of Midwestern grass that somebody said, like, we want our livestock to eat this. And a lot of them were just said that, like, our livestock aren't eating this. These things are just growing up and they die and it's just an eyesore here. And the reclamation, they said, it's just it's just bad. And it, it's, yeah, it was really, really good to hear, like, the community members all spoke up during that meeting. And so we, of course, as an organization, we were there, we documented that. And then we just observed as well. And the Colt gave testimony or she gave comments to as well here and there. And then, um, but yeah, it was really awesome to see our community, the communities in that area really mm -hmm. step, especially the Navajo women. I would say that meeting really showed the strength of the net people is through our women. Mm -hmm. Because I was recording and I was watching. I said, all of these people that spoke here were all women. They were like the matriarchs because we are a matrilineal society and so everything runs through the female and the family. And so like land owner, the land base belongs to the women. And so it's really empowering to see that because these are like this. Is, I guess you could say this is really showed like how um, aggressive, how stern that Navajo folks are, especially Navajo women. Like this is our land base. This is our land. We've already had it torn up because of coal mining now you guys are planning to leave as peabody why aren't you helping us get it to back to back getting it back to where it should be and of course we're not going to have everything like everything's not going to be in place you just disturb millions of years of geology thousands whatever of years of geology but we at least want something that we can have and so that was really empowering to see like a lot of native Nav the navajo women just really like putting their foot down because like this is their land. This is, they're going to have this for their kids in the future generation, their daughters too. And it was just like, I was like, wow, these ladies are really, they're really mean, but that's, that's what we need. <laughs> Inspiring. Yeah. 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 Not mean. Yeah. Just, yeah. uh, yeah. Standing up. Yeah. 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 Just to, I, I guess for me, 
uh, Adrian, just listening to you, I want to clarify kind of the legacy of this is I want to make sure I understand it is Black Mesa has been inhabited for a very long time. And then settler extractive industry came in, set up mines, displaced people through forest removals, pulled coal out of the earth, and then transported that coal one way and then transported another way over to Navajo Generating Station, is that what it was called? In Page, and would burn that coal uh, for energy in the Southwest. And then as coal energy has been reduced over time, Peabody Coal is kind of the main company associated with this. And so then I guess the way I understand it, I want to make sure I understand this correctly, is that they've just kind of left. It's like they did all this damage, taken off, and now they're just trying to get off the hook for it in a sense. Yeah, yeah, that's the main thing is that they're done. They filed for bankruptcy. The mines have shut down right now. They're slowly making their way out. And their last hook is that um, their last, I guess, ball and chain, quote-unquote, is the um, reclamation. Like they're still bound to that area but through reclamation. And their last way out is that, bond release and so that's where they're putting up so right now we um they're submitting their application for bond release and that's where osm is kind of the one that oversees that Mm -hmm. and makes sure everything is going right and then eventually they give it to osm or bia and bia finally signs off it and they're out of here and so that's pretty yeah that's exactly it it's like it's they're making they're trying to make their way out but we're pushing for that no they still have a lot of work to do and the one thing was really interesting to hear a lot of people they said i don't think they should ever be released they said there's a lot more work that needs to be done here a lot of them people say yeah you won't see the 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 changes until like 10 years down the road well let's keep them there keep them until Mm -hmm. we actually see these changes and that was really interesting interesting to see because a lot of them said well we might never get these things back so what happens then and uh, like especially the land base like these things might change like what happens once they get relinquished who do we go to next like who do we com- like say hey we need this needs to be adjusted changed the land these the plant whatever these plants are all gone they're all dying off after like 10 years what happens next and that was a really interesting thing i'm glad they all brought those points up because then that really kind of said this is the community's perspective on bond release. They said, no, they should not be relinquished of these mm-hmm. bonds. Yeah. Well, I was just going over the mission of TNA, and it says our mission is to protect the water of Black Mesa from industry use and waste. We work to bring power back to our indigenous communities impacted by coal, and our work is rooted in protecting our water. Water is life. Um, and it seems that the maybe the mission of what you're doing is that very thing, is trying to... Uh, hold Peabody Coal accountable in a sense for Mm -hmm. what they've created. And um, you mentioned earlier that storytelling and design come together for you. And I was wondering, you said that the design behind the TNA logo was sort of your your concept or your idea. And I was wondering if you could speak to it a little bit or share the idea of the design for your logo. So for us as a family, um, I would say the design first started with the water wave. So you can kind of see there's a water wave here. Um, that was a traditional design done by my grandma, our grandma. Um, she was really, she actually lived to be 102. And wow. yeah, she passed back in 2009 when I was at my senior year of high school. So she did the water wave. That was kind of more iconic thing that she would weave. And my mom weaved it. My other aunts did too. And so that I would say when I was designing this, um, Nicole mentioned, I want the water wave in it. 
And so that's kind of where we decide, okay, this is my starting off point because the water wave goes back to our work of the water work we do on Black Mesa. And so eventually I put that there. Um, and then eventually we realized, why don't we kind of mimic like um, the what we see for Black Mesa? And so that's where like we have the Black Mesa here, the in aquifer is underneath Black Mesa. And then she said that I also want like, we're rooted in tradition in our ceremonies and prayers and that's where she said i want corn stalks and so that's where the corn stalks came in because um for us corn is very essential to our way of life food uh, medicine and also we use it for ceremonies and other, other um, um things and so that's where we wanted the corn stalk and then the roots so the roots pretty much meaning that we're grounded in culture that's kind of ceremony prayers that is our foundation as well is that the corn represents that and it's rooted in black mesa and like i mentioned we're probably one of the one of the few remaining communities that still have a large population of native speakers like for younger folks um of course you got a lot of native speakers everywhere but um black mesa region is really high in language and culture because we're so so, so remote and so that kind of plays to that is that we're rooted in culture language and that's kind of where the roots show that keeps black mesa strong is the roots of language and culture and then also the um here are dragonflies and so that's where nicole she loves dragonflies and she said the reason being is that dragonflies are always around water and that's kind of the connection there is that they're beautiful beings that you see around water. And so that's where we wanted the dragonflies, the cornstalk, um, rooted into Black Mesa with an aquifer underneath. And so that just kind of, and then a lot of it is the circle. So we, we had a square design, but let's go with the circle because that's kind of more symbolic of kind of the whole cycle, the whole, um, whole thing as a whole. And at the top, you have the opening. So this is usually done... Um, for like a lot of traditional things, our baskets, designs, you always have an opening to the east because that's where the sun comes up. And so that's where the opening at the top kind of signifies that. And we're kind of going off of like the minimalist kind of style here. That's a huge thing because a lot of the designs that our, our moms or aunts do is almost like minimal. They don't try and do those really exaggerated like trading post style, what the traders wanted for us to weave. Mm. Instead, the ladies here on black in our area um, they said, you know what? We don't want to go with the traders. We don't care what the, the traders didn't have a good legacy here in Navajo. We're not trying to appease what they think is sellable out there. I mean, it is probably sellable out there, but we're tired of that. We're going to weave what we see in our communities, what we see, what we want to weave. And that kind of our design tells that story is like a really minimal um, design, which kind of tells a story, which a lot of weavings do. They tell the stories, they kind of in print what like almost like a history what's going on and so that's kind of what we wanted to do with our logo was we did that with Tornajon and the Sacred Water Speaks established 2000 um so yeah that's the backstory and the logo there yeah, thank you so much for sharing that like it just seems so um rich in story and cultural connection yeah, yeah. I, you knocked it out of the park it looks great <laughs> yeah it looks great aesthetically yeah absolutely yeah. I've had the opportunity to just have a couple of conversations with you, and I know you are so much more than just the work you're doing right now. Yeah, would you be willing just to touch on some of your personal interests and hobbies? Like, what makes you, you? Yeah, so um, I also do, outside of the work of TNA, I would say right now, um, 
what takes up outside of TNA is um, ResDuro. So mm-hmm. I'm one of the co-founders and organizers of ResDuro, mm-hmm. um, which is a mountain bike and duro race that takes place in our home community, Hard Rock. Uh, and it's the first of its kind. We're the first um, indigenous-led uh, mountain bike and duro race. And so that's really, um, really awesome to see. And I also do pottery, traditional Navajo pottery and ceramic stoneware. Um, and running-wise, I haven't done a whole lot of it um, recently. I'm still trying to get back into my running, but... Yeah, I do running here and there. Um, pottery, it's kind of on the hold right now, my traditional pottery. Um, I've been so busy with TNA and ResDuro that pottery, I mean, I should be doing it because it would help me out. <laughs> well, there's only 24 hours in Yeah, day. yeah, you're right. So I just I just kind of put pottery on the hold, but that that's one another passion I like to do, especially working with your hands. That's a big thing. Yeah. And clay, it's really goes well and well together so I do that and then ceramic stoneware I think I'm going to start that in the spring at CCC so I'm going to take a class there and start that up again um so I do that and then running I've always been a runner um did that in high school did that in college and I've been really enjoyed it I haven't done a whole lot I've actually slacked packed on a couple of pounds but now I'm like you know what I need to get back out there but I might be shifting to mountain biking I think because that's um, I mean, right now, like running, it's just like, oh, this is really, really tough to get back into. But and then with the work of Resduro, I think I've been really like inspired to get a mountain bike because yeah. like, I mean, it, it's the I I don't know. People just ask me, how are you an organizer of Resduro and you don't mountain bike? <laughs> I said, well, that's probably yeah. a good thing, though. I said, because I'm asking questions as an outsider, yeah. somebody who has no idea in regards to safety organizing operation venue location i said i'm asking these questions as an outsider and i feel like that has also been helpful on our end as organizers because i didn't really mountain bike i mean i have a, I have a like a road bike but that's about it and so it's just kind of like for me i was like you know what i think it's good that i don't mountain bike right now because i'm asking questions as like my perspective on organizing this how do i go about this how does this done and so um yeah so that's been resdro it's been really awesome we did our we're on our second year this year was our second year resdro 2022 and we had a huge turnout it's 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 crazy because like originally this started out with just a little friendly competition amongst nigel and his friends he's like you know what like i want to have a race here mom i want to have a race i want to race with my friend we have some trails that i had developed back here i talked with masana and cheche which is my mom and dad and his grandparents. I talked to my grandparents about it. They said, yes, I can do trails. So he did trails out there on the sheep herding trails, things like that. And eventually I got the trails ready. I want to host a race in August. And eventually, like, I had no, I mean, honestly, I, I've seen Nigel do mountain biking, do a racing here and there, some of it. And I just noticed, like, yeah, this is not very, uh, not really a diverse sport. <laughs> you have to come from a place of privilege to have, like, the money, the resources to do it. And so I know Nigel's got, I was fortunate enough to have that too as well. And so I was like, wow, okay. And then eventually he was like, oh, Nigel wants to do an enduro here. And at that time, I really had no idea what enduro was. I had to learn as I went. And that's kind of where um, he, I was brought in. And then his mom said, hey, can you design the logo? Can you design a flyer? Can you design this, whatever? I, or she just, no, she came to me just for the logo. Can you design a logo? I want to do shirts. I was like, okay, I'll get that done. I know I've done shirts before with TNA. I've done shirts with her before, so I'm familiar with how to go about that. So I did the shirt stuff. And I said, okay, um, what about trail map? Or do you guys have like a course map? No. Okay, I'll make that too. So I made that one. 
And then I said, okay, um, what about this and that? And they're like, um, can we do a backdrop too? And I was like, I don't know, we'll see. And eventually we started going, and that's kind of where I got tired. And okay, so what about safety? What are you guys going to do about it? Because it was supposed to be a small little thing amongst friends, like no more than like 15 people. But eventually it turned into 55 people yeah. that came out. And that was wow. crazy because it was so... If you were to be there for Res Zero 2021, it was just really like really rugged <laughs> grassroots yeah really grassroots and then this year was bigger it was more organized we had better like signage we had sponsors that came through and it was huge and so it just felt like our first year and it was really I would say the big takeaway is that the reason that we continue to do this is that Jermaine recently said Res Duro is more like an identity right now because we get other native, we have other tribal nations looking to us. We're not affiliated with the Navajo Nation, our residual event. We're not, um, we're not affiliated with Navajo Nation. We don't, we're not sponsored by Navajo. They're not helping like really provide funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're doing more of our own family. And a lot of people are looking to us, other tribal nations to say, how did you all do residual? Like we want to know the backstory. Like what, how did you all do this? We're, we would like to do something similar. And we're just like, wow, we got other tribal nations who have the territory, who have the terrain perfect for enduro racing. It's like, and they're coming to us, some little dusty place in Arizona. <laughs> and so that was really interesting. And then also just kind of like becoming like a beacon of like hope or a beacon for like enduro racing for native communities. Like we, we I, I was thinking like Nigel, like it's crazy. He just went out and did it. He went and did these things. And I was like, just imagine if he had the training, if he had grew up with like doing more camps or whatever, he could have been good, but he didn't really want to go that route. And so it's just thinking we've got a lot of kids out there who have the potential. It's just none of them have ever really tapped into it. And so um, that's kind of where Rezdo, we're really pushing for that is like we want to create an avenue, uh, like a almost like a venue for kids to try it out to see if they like it if they do they don't if they do they do if they don't they don't that's fine uh, but just kind of bringing it home to our community because Nigel at one point when he was out there when I noticed I was like you're the only person of color the only native out here and that's kind of what he noticed like yeah I'm the only person of color native out here and it's just kind of I'm like I'm the only like oddball sometimes and eventually he got in connection with other folks who were out mountain biking to other Na- Na- Navajos who were like whoa where are you from oh, I'm from Hard Rock whoa, I didn't know you were like a mountain biker too. So eventually he made connection and that's kind of where he was able to bring other mountain bikers together. And then with Res Duro, we had other mountain bikers come on Navajo to hear our community mm-hmm. of Hard Rock. And they were just like tripping out. They were like, I had no idea this was here in the middle of nowhere in mm-hmm. the boonies. Like you would think it'd be in a bigger town on Navajo. I don't know, but it's in a Hard Rock. A small family put this on and it's, big you've got big sponsors you've got osprey you've got imba all these guys here like as sponsors and they were just like this is crazy like i didn't think this was ever going to be possible so that was our big push as organizers is that we want our people to feel proud especially our native youth because i see that when we create our residual um merchandise especially the word res just the word itself is an identity it's a statement there because it says res Anybody who's red, not native, will say, oh, res, oh, that must be like some kind of native stuff right there. So res duro. And it's in a way we've really like, um, mark, not marketed, but we've really like geared it towards our youth because then they can feel proud to say when they go to different enduros, hey, we have an enduro like that. 
we do have an exact same race. It's called Resduro. That's what we have on Navajo. And it's just something like to for our native youth to really be proud of to say this, we've done it. We can do it here in our own community. And so the beacon of hope for that as well. And also just kind of like bringing um, other folks into spaces like this that aren't that don't really feel like they not. I don't want to say welcome, but they just don't feel like they're they're like the oddball like we've got a couple of folks who came out they're just like i'm so glad you guys are doing this because anytime i go to other races i'm always the only person of color but here we got a lot of people of color here and it's just really like empowering to see and we're just so happy we're just like that's what we want to see because like we're bringing like a space for native native people people of color and of course it's all open to everybody but <clears throat> the people that come here they just kind of were like this is really like empowering to see like we had a lot of they said i've never been to a race where there were this many youth groms show up for a race and they were like usually it's just always adult race big guys going out there the older guys doing this but we've never been to a race where we had youth and that's kind of where for us it was like we did them a disservice 2021 2022 we're going to make it better 2023 it's going to be better it's going to be bigger <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh this is so yeah you've got my blood pumping like uh, <laughs> i'm stoked um yeah and there's the, there's a film that documents a bit about some of the aspects of what you've shared about is it okay if i sh yeah. share that yeah the trails before us and so we'll include is it okay if we include a link to that yeah yeah for sure um you know, there's an interesting story. Uh, so, you, you know how YouTube will select videos for you. Um, so one day, it was after you guys had done the film festival here in Flagstaff and everything, and I'd seen the film, but I got recommended that video through Specialized. Um, yeah, the trails before us, and it had tons of view. I, I, I hadn't checked it recently, but it's like tens of thousands of views, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a good thing it launched on there because before we kind of just kept it like it was only being viewed on like, um, what was it like film festivals, places like that, mm -hmm. and eventually it made its way. And eventually, Specialized released it on their YouTube, and mm -hmm. we were like, whoa! And we actually had um, like we got a connection with the high school, a local high school at Pinion, the mm -hmm. JROTC. Um, they they actually one of our other persons that we knew why don't you ask JROTC to help you guys with like traffic control or whatever? So we brought them out and eventually they saw the film and then the instructor, Sergeant Jones, he emailed me. I worked with him when I was there at the high school but he emailed oh, wow. me and he was just like, hey, Mr. Herder, we can still call him Mr. Herder. <laughs> hey, Mr. Herder. He's like, wow, I saw that film. And he said, it was amazing. Yes. He said, these guys are so pumped for this because yeah. I told them we would like your help, your, your cadets. And he was like, these cadets are so pumped. They were so excited. And when they came out, of course, they came a little later, but it was better late than never. So they came, <laughs> they helped us out. And before they left, because they couldn't stay, they had to go back and then come back again the next day. So they came over and was like, hey, before you all go, let me give, we'll give you guys some like sweaters because we had um, sweaters that were donated to us from uh, SRAM. Mm -hmm. So they came out and they had a bunch of sweaters. So we gave them all sweaters. We had Hydroflask that also contributed to the event. Um, we each gave them hydroflask and then they were just like freaking out they were like you know how expensive these things yeah. are they're like wow and they were just like they were so amazed and, they, and then they went back and then they came back the next day they were all excited they were just like this is crazy we were able to be a part of like I don't know this event we saw the documentary with Nigel and I think some of them kind of knew Nigel because then he was a senior but he mm -hmm. didn't go to school 
So eventually they were just like, whoa, this is Nigel. We, like, he went to school with him at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, he's a sponsored writer for Specialized. Mm-hmm. I'll explain to Cody later what Enduro is. All these terms are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right over my head. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You just have this energy and enthusiasm about you. It's, to me, it's no question why you end up in the roles that you do because you bring just such a passion and energy to it. So. You know, we like to end with a question that we ask everyone, um, and it really is an open-ended question. It's geared for any answer that's just authentic. But, um, yeah, how would you define Flagstaff? So in a couple of sentences, what does Flagstaff to you, or what does this area in northern Arizona mean to you? Flagstaff, to me, it would mean a place of high elevation, it's a perfect place for running. <laughs> yeah. um, and we also have, it's also home to one of our mountains here, the Okola Sleep. Um, and this mountain here is a very important mountain, especially in our creation story. And it's just really interesting just to see, like, it's a really, I like Flagstaff. I mean, now that I've um, been here, it's a really nice place. It used to be bigger when I was small, but now I'm like, oh, it's a pretty small town. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I like Flagstaff. I would say Flagstaff really, it, it's an awesome place. It's probably got um, one of the best views, um, night sky, and probably I've heard it's got one of the cleanest air quality here as well, which is perfect. Um, so yeah, Flagstaff, it just means a um, good place to be outdoors. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's one of the reasons why I moved here because I was like, I'm not going to do Phoenix. You hell only have to offer it in a certain time of the day. Flagstaff is perfect. It's a little bit higher, more snow, but you've got places to do things. You've got the mountain there, the height. You've got um, Sedona right there. You've got, it's kind of like a perfect spot. You've got a lot of like places to go here or near here. Yeah, I, I guess just real quick, um, I, I just want to extend a very deep thank you uh, for sharing your time with us today, um, your stories, uh, your culture and yourself with us. And I uh, just want to say thank you so much for, for that gift. Yes, thank you, Adrian. Awesome. Well, thank you all for having me. Wow. Adrian just left the joint. He's dropping knowledge. Blammo. What a time, huh? Oh, what a time. What a time indeed. What a time indeed. That was a true joy to sit with Adrian today. Yeah. 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 What do you take with with you from this interview? Uh, That you clearly have no idea what Enduro is? Yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for that quick rundown. You know, the thing that I would highlight about what I take in that privilege it felt to sit with Adrian um, was his connection to land. Hmm. And there are a couple of ways this comes about for me. So I mentioned I had a couple of conversations with Adrian and he didn't get a chance to speak to this in the podcast, but in one of my other conversations with him, um, he talked about how they select where to put trails on the land that's owned by his family based on what they observe in the land. So they let, they watch what the land is can sustain. Mm-hmm. And then they make the decision of, yeah, this is an area that a trail um, can exist and not have an impact beyond what we would hope for. Mm-hmm. So they kind of observe the land and make decisions about that. And then he was also, yeah. he, before we started recording, you heard him talking about the rain yeah. and they had the race coming up and he was really worried because it rains so much during the monsoons. Mm-hmm. He was worried that hold, holding the race would destroy the, the land 
and he was really worried about it. And they actually delayed the pre-ride and um, slowly opened up what trails were available for people that came out for the race based on what the land could sustain. Mm -hmm. And and so in that way, when he talks about Resduro and decisions made about the land, it makes me think, oh, there's this connection to the land for him where you look around and you observe what's going on and you make decisions based on observation, not just Mm -hmm. decision on what do we want from the land and now we'll go do that. Gotcha. And so that, but then secondly, and even more profoundly when he described the logo Mm. and how in detail the logo actually outlines this connection, um, it's like in, within that circle is basically like kind of addressing ecology as a system. Like Mm. there are all these things that are interwoven and interact together. Um, water below the ground. It reminds me of the aquifer. And then the black mesa with the things that grow out of it, but the roots that are in it mm-hmm. um, and just the ecology of it. And I just thought, man, there's just a lot of connection to the land and awareness of the land in what Adrian has to share. Yeah, that was a really neat moment during the interview as he was wearing the logo. Right. And mm-hmm. so he was able to sort of point to it as he was explaining the, the idea and the experience in it. Um, yeah, that was that was a really neat moment. I thought for me, you know, sitting with Adrian today. And just kind of what it felt like in the room. And I'd wonder if your experience felt similar, but the words radiant and joy are kind of what comes across my mind. Oh, yeah. Is he just radiates joy. Like, um, it was just a real pleasure to sit with him and to learn and to hear his story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, just learning about what he's doing with TNA and the important, important work going down. Mm-hmm. There. Yeah. And he brings an energy to it. And uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I would think joy is a part of that energy that I felt sitting with it. Cause when he talks about it, yeah. it's less about like incriminating or mm-hmm. speaking negatively about things. It's actually about what he's taking from it, what he's learned from it, what we yeah. all can grow from. Yeah. yeah. It's like this joy yeah. in approaching things as they could be. Totally. And it was like through this education and empowerment is, is kind of the words that jump into my mind for that as well. Um, and in that, to me, it just seems like a deep, deep connection to self and a connection to, to his history and his family story. And all that seems to be present in him, uh, as he goes through the world. Yeah. So he had, he had that connection to self, uh, piece and through that connection to self, he probably, that's how he's able to radiate joy despite um, tackling issues that may not bring joy. Yeah. Yeah. Really difficult, tough topics uh, with no quick solutions. It sounds like when yeah. he was disca- uh, describing a lot of the process, it just sounded like there's a lot of, a lot of uh, bureaucratic stuff at play. Yeah. 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 Man, I don't think Adrian was too interested, but I'd love to ride bikes with him. I yeah. tried to talk him into it. Um, I don't know how motivated he would be to spend time. It sounds like time's uh, a rare commodity for him anyways. Yeah. But uh, I'd love to hang out with him more. Yeah. Yeah. Such a, such a, just a joyful person to be around. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. It's been a minute. You can always find us on the interwebs, www.beyondflag.com, flag spelled. F-L-G. And we are always on IG, uh, five days a week, 17 days a month, 14 days a year year yeah 14 days a year 17 days a month and 14 days a year the math checks out just doing a quick math check here. <laughs> math checks out beyond underscore minus yeah. the seven and then okay two zeros and then right. 14 uh-huh. days a year yeah okay beyond underscore flg you can find we all right okay love you
has never come to mind. <laughs> oh my gosh. Dude, how big are my eyeballs? Your face, dude. Your face like, is like, oh! What are you doing? Dude. Oh I was my unsure. gosh. I was unsure if it would actually work. Oh yeah, it worked, man. <laughs> it's like climbing the, it's like, like increasing the shock. <laughs> It's like, we'll start him at this number and then just ramp it up <laughs> while he's talking. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. <clears throat> Great stuff. <laughs> okay. Um. I think everyone will be very impressed by this moment. <laughs>